Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are explained through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. This is our 405th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Victor Camp, retired professor of geological sciences at San Diego State University. We're going to be talking about the case for a long-lived and robust Yellowstone hotspot. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsabital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Tanaran, and today we'll be talking about the case for a long-lived and robust Yellowstone hotspot with Dr. Victor Camp, retired professor of geological sciences at San Diego State University. Welcome to the show, Vic. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad you're here, too. Could you start us with a little background on the geological history of the Yellowstone area? Sure. I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, I think most people know it's a, it's an area of abundant past volcanism, you know, these really large uh, volcanic eruptions, really on a scale that we haven't seen in historic times, at least human history. And we refer to it as a hot spot, and this has been a little bit controversial over over time, uh, you know, what a hot spot actually is. Uh, but Yellowstone is actually co- connected to a whole series of uh, older volcanic eruptions that get progressively older to the, to the west of, of Yellowstone, all the way to the Oregon-Nevada border. And those are the, um, uh, the volcanics that we've been studying for, for quite some time. So the idea here of a hotspot is that there's something hot beneath Yellowstone. What is it? What causes the volcanism? And that's what the controversy is. So I, I should just add to that that there's kind of two ideas on this, and, and the prevailing idea for a long period of time is that hotspots are associated with um, mantle plumes, and these are very deep um, sources of hot rock uh, that get their heat all the way down the crust mantle boundary. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is about uh, 2,700 kilometers beneath the surface of the Earth. And that heat um, provides thermal energy for material to start to rise up through the entire mantle and then impinges um, beneath Yellowstone, and that's where it melts to produce these volcanic eruptions. Very similar, in fact, to what we see in Hawaii, uh, which is also a hot spot, but it's under uh, oceanic crust instead of continental crust. Okay. Um, well, thanks, Vic, for taking my first two questions away from me. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> Have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> so in in Yellowstone, describe sort of, or in the Yellowstone area, because obviously you've got volcanic activity going on um, to the uh, to the east and, and to, or to the west as well. Um how does this play out? Do, do the same sorts of things happen over a hot spot all the time, or is it affected by the rock formations that the hot spot is right is is beneath at any given time? Uh, and do you get different kind of geologic looks depending on what's on top of the hot spot? You know that is a an, an absolute excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> He's back. He's back. I made, made up for my yeah. 
<laughs> I, I'm not just saying that to, to, to make you feel good because it has a lot of relevance. Um, I, I just mentioned that, uh, that Hawaii is also a hot spot. And uh, when it erupts, um, the eruptions uh, are very gentle, they're very calm, they're non-catastrophic. But we know the Yellowstone is underlain by a hot spot, but when it erupts, it often produces these highly explosive uh, uh, events, as I mentioned, on a, on a huge scale. And to put that in perspective, they're probably something on the order of a thousand times more explosive than the eruption of Mount St. Helens in uh, 1980. So we don't want to experience that. <clears throat> but the question is, if they're both hotspots at Hawaii and Yellowstone, the why is there such a difference in the, uh, the, the style of eruption? And the difference here is that the material that melts is actually mantle material. It's it's mantle rock. And when you melt mantle, you produce a basaltic magma. And that's what erupts in Hawaii. All that dark rock is is basalt that cools and crystallizes from the magma. But what happens underneath Yellowstone, (coughs) excuse me, is that basalt will be created, but then that basalt magma rises up into the crust. It turns out that uh, basalt is a very hot uh, magma, and it's so hot that it will melt crustal rocks to produce an entirely different kind of magma. And those crustal rocks generate a rhyolite magma, which is uh, uh, more silicic, uh, uh, much more highly explosive. Uh, So when it erupts on the surface, we produce these gigantic uh, type of eruptions that we have at, at Yellowstone. So that's the character. Um, it really depends on the nature of, um, of the material that exists beneath a oceanic plate, like the Pacific plate where Hawaii is, or beneath a continental plate, like we have here in North America at Yellowstone. Nick, I um, enjoyed your article in the GSA magazine, uh, and uh, it connected a lot of dots. I'm, I'm kind of a frustrated amateur geologist who was steered away from the profession because uh, I don't know why my dad said no, but I just listened to him. But needless to say, is is there uh, any controversy uh, or any disagreement that there was there is in fact a hot spot that has tracked across uh, North America from uh, you mentioned the uh, the Oregon Nevada border, and I was wondering if he actually into the Oregon the flood basalts are also part of that, but all the way into Wyoming. Is there controversy that it is, in fact, a hot spot? There's not a controversy that there's a hot spot, but, but, but I wanted, there's, a, there's a caveat to that, because the, the actual definition, the original definition of a hot spot was a, jo- a non-genetic definition. It just simply means it was an area of hot rock where we get a lot of volcanic activity. Sure. So everybody, everybody agrees with that. But there's always been a controversy as to the, uh, to the genesis um, it's still controversial. I mean, not everybody agrees, um, but uh, most people agree uh, that the most likely explanation is this mantle plume that I've uh, that I've suggested. Um, so yeah, it, it, it has been controversial, um, and the the progression of volcanism that moves off to to the to the west to the Oregon uh, Nevada border. The age of the rhyolite rocks, you know, that we we can date isotopically, uh, get progressively uh, older as you go farther and farther to the west. And this is just like we have at Yellowstone, where you can uh, uh, we have age dates on the Hawaiian uh, islands, the lavas in Hawaii, and also underwater seamounts 
that show that we have a progressively older and older age as you go off to the northwest from, from Hawaii. And the idea here is that you have a plume that's stationary, but because of plate tectonics, uh, the plates are moving over that stationary hotspot. And as it moves over it, uh, the ages get progressively uh, older as it moves away from the hotspot, in this case to the west for, uh, for uh, uh, North, North America. And you'd, you'd mentioned that there are uh, these uh, flood basalts that exist in, in Oregon. They're called the Steens basalts, and they extend all the way up into uh, uh, eastern Oregon and into uh, Washington State, and together they're called the Columbia River basalts. And this is a vast outpouring of basalt. And people, uh, for a long period of time, didn't realize that there's a connection between those basalts and the, uh, the Yellowstone hotspot. We now know that there is, because the oldest of those uh, basalts are the same age as the oldest rhyolites uh, right there at the Oregon-Nevada uh, border. Okay. Um, Vic, my, uh, I have sort of a two-part question, because uh, the first one is, is a timeline question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we're talking about ages, are we talking about, you know, a few tens of thousands of years? Are we talking about tens of millions of years and then my second question is i think when when most people hear the idea of a hot spot what they think of is something that looks like a candle flame it's very narrow and and very small um is that the kind of when you use that word for yellowstone is that what we're looking at or are you looking at something that that has more of a traditional volcano look with a magma um, pool and and a, a fairly broad caldera, for lack of a better term, um, and you know. So so what are we what are we kind of looking at here? Um, so so those those are also good questions. Um, in, in terms of the ages, uh, I, I should have clarified that because I know that you know as a geologist we tend to think in different age terms than, than, than most people. Uh, but the difference in the ages are uh, on the order of millions and tens of millions of years. So if you go back to where we initially believe that the hotspot began, now this has changed based on this article that you had, had mentioned that we just published. But the original idea is that it began near the Oregon-Nevada border about 17 million years ago. And then the products of that hotspot then would get progressively younger in this case from there all the way to Yellowstone over time. Um, but now we, we believe that the hotspot actually began offshore, and that's the, the case that we try to make in this uh, paper, the long-lived and robust Yellowstone hotspot. So we believe it actually arrived uh, offshore of uh, uh, California, northern California, uh, about uh, uh, 45 million years ago something like that, and then it's worked its way all the way over to Yellowstone over, over time. And the, the, the second part of your question uh, about, is about the footprint of the hotspot. Uh, and the, the, the idea of it being sort of a, a narrow candle-like uh, feature, well, it, it's, I'm not sure, let me approach it this way. The whole idea of a mantle plume um, is that when a plume rises up through the mantle, it's composed of two different parts. Uh, there's a large bulbous head at the top, and it's fed by a narrow plume tail. And as the head tries to make its way up through the mantle, 
it's in solid form. It's it, but it behaves plastically because at great depths and pressure, uh, rocks can't break. You know, but they can they can fold in sort of a, a plastic manner. But it's still difficult for all that hot rock to move its way all the, it's to move itself upward all the way through the entire mantle. But the tail is continuing to feed hot material into the plume head, so the plume head actually grows as it moves up through through the mantle. It's kind of like bl- blowing up a bloom. So when that large head hits the base of what we call the lithosphere, which is just below the crust, uh, it spreads out this large pancake-like feature that could be 2,000 kilometers across, you know, large, you know, 1,000 miles across, uh, something like that. We believe that it's those plume heads that create these flood basalt provinces on Earth, you know, vast pourings of uh, basalt like the Columbia River flood basalt province that I mentioned earlier. But that head will eventually get sheared away, and what's left then is the narrow tail. And it's the narrow tail that produces uh, the hotspot tracks. And this is what we see, the the Snake River Plain hotspot track is what it's called, that moves up through Idaho uh, all the way across southern Idaho to Yellowstone. So that hotspot volcanism is directly derived from this narrow plume tail. But when we say narrow, I mean, we used to have different ideas on this, but the diameter is something probably on the order of 20 to 100 kilometers across, you know, something like that. Sure. Okay. Um, We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The 88.5 FM website keeps you up to date with everything KALA, including a complete program schedule for 88.5 and 106.1 FM. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Victor Camp, retired professor of geological sciences at San Diego State University, and we're talking about the case for a long-lived and robust Yellowstone hotspot. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. And Brett, why don't you start us off? Can do. So the title is The Case for a Long-Lived and Robust Hotspot. So what makes it long-lived? What's the typical length of time that one of these hot spots would exist, and what makes this one uh, especially robust? So that, that's a, a, another good question. I have to say you guys are good with your, your questions, and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not a particularly easy to answer. Uh, the, the longest hot spot that we know of in terms of age is the, the Hawaiian hot spot. And we know that that's been uh, continuing to feed volcanic eruptions uh, at least 70 million years. Um, and you can, taste, you can trace these along the Hawaiian hotspot track that goes all the way up to the Aleutian Islands. You know, it's 3,000 kilometers of uh, old volcanic islands that date back to about 70,000 years ago. Uh, sorry, 70 million years ago. So, uh, so that's the oldest. Um, 
And um, there are others that uh, it's more difficult to determine the age. Um, but, you know, once a hotspot arises, we believe that it's most likely will last for at least a few tens of millions of years. Now, as for the Yellowstone hotspot, um, you know, for a long period of time, we just thought it was, you know, arrived 17 million years ago. Uh, but now we believe that it's older and uh, goes back to about 45 million years ago. Okay, Terry. Uh, yes. Dr. Camp, you mentioned that Hawaii is also a hot spot, but more gentle and calm in comparison to Yellowstone, which could be highly explosive. Are there other hot spots in the world that are comparable to Yellowstone for their potential explosive nature? So th- th- there are. Um, th- th- the question really revolves around ancient hot spots that are no longer active. We know a lot of these, and we know the history of those. You know, we know whether they're explosive or, or not explosive, and those that are active today. Uh, for the ones that are active today, I mean, almost most of them are. Um, are underneath oceanic uh, crust and, and not on continental crust. Uh, but the one that comes to mind that would be similar to Yellowstone uh, would be uh, in Ethiopia, uh, the Ethio- Ethiopian mantle plume. But it's already uh, appears to have broken uh, the crust uh, apart uh, right at the triple junction between the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden and the Ethiopian rift system. You know, that sort of triple junction is being broken apart by uh, by the Ethiopian mantle, mantle plume. At least that's the model. And I think that's been around for, um, oh, just let me think, a, a few tens of a, a million years. But it hasn't been as, as explosive as the history of Yellowstone. And probably the main reason for that is the crust is thinner uh, there at uh, uh, Ethiopia. You know, the continental crust is thinner, and that's what you have to have to melt to produce the rhyolite that produces the more explosive type eruptions. Vic, uh, since we're talking explosion, uh, I believe if my studies of my memory, actually not my studies, but memory is correct, uh, the last eruption uh, in Yellowstone was about 600,000 years ago. And if so, how close are we to the next uh, explosive event, if geologists have, want to take a guess? Yeah, that's uh, that's something that, of course, everybody wants to know, <laughs> whether, whether you're a geologist or not, right? Don't buy land there, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, there, uh, it, it, it's you know when we have these eruptions to produce the the really large explosive eruptions that we would have at Yellowstone, for, for example. Um, you're right about the age. It was about 600,000 years. We've had three such eruptions within the last two million years, but the most, the youngest is a uh, about 600. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 600,000. But um, but we also have a lot of much smaller eruptions that, that occur between those large, highly explosive events. So they're they're not always explosive. You know, sometimes we have smaller eruptions as as well. So it'd be really nice if we had a, a clear uh, uh, progressive pattern of these explosive eruptions that, w- that was cyclic to the extent that we could use that uh, for predicting the next eruption. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have, you know, we haven't resolved uh, the time frame in, in, in that fashion. Uh, so we can't really do that. 
So the only thing we can do right now um, is that we do have a lot of technology at Yellowstone, and, and the U.S. Geological Survey is in, involved with this. Uh, they have the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, and there's a lot of uh, work being done there where uh, seismic evidence tells us that there is a, a, a couple of magma chambers directly beneath Yellowstone. One is a magma chamber for basaltic rock, I mean basaltic magma. Another is a magma chamber for the rhyolite magma that produces the more explosive eruption. And that magma chamber underneath the uh, National Park today uh, has about, it's an estimated 15% uh, rhyolite magma. And that's not enough to produce an explosive eruption. Uh, We probably need about 50% to produce a highly explosive uh, eruption, and we're not there yet. So when it's going to occur, I mean, most people would say not tomorrow, yeah. <laughs> but, but probably more likely a thousand years to ten thousand years, something like that. Vic, if I can follow up on that, uh, uh, hasn't the USGA uh, noted that there's uh, uh, the ground is slowly going up uh, in the Yellowstone area? Yeah, that, that, that's right. It's, it's directly. Uh, associated with, with, with the magma chamber, but it just doesn't go up. I mean, it, it, in a general sense, the, the, the whole high elevation of uh, Yellowstone, you know, this whole huge Yellowstone plateau is at a very high elevation, and that ele- elevation is actually supported not by the magma chamber, but, but by the, the actual mantle plume, you know, the, the thermal energy of the, of the mantle plume. You know, it's buoyant and pushes it up. But in terms of the magma chamber, which is a, which is much smaller and a much uh, higher level, uh, that does control uh, a, a thermal response. Uh, but it doesn't just move up; it actually kind of breathes. You know, it goes up a little bit, then it goes down a little bit, then it goes up and down. So it's very active. Uh, so you can measure it directly with satellites uh, today. You know, to determine the the, the amount of motion. Um, and I don't have those numbers off the top of my head, sure. but, but it, it is dynamic. Yeah. Okay, um, Vic, we, we talked about the, the size of the potential explosion, and there have been explosions in the past. Can you give me some sense of the kind of um, environmental impact a super volcanic explosion would have? Um you know what are we we looking at? Mount St. Helens was a fairly dramatic event in terms of you know the the number of acres and miles that that were hit with ash and so forth. And when you're talking about something that's a thousand times that size, um, I'm seeing um, you know ash clouds that that circumnavigate the globe. I'm seeing. Um, you know, all sorts of things, you know, D- Des Moines suddenly becoming a, uh, <laughs> buried, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, so, so exactly what is this likely to look, or what has it looked like in the past when these super eruptions have happened? Well, they, they are, uh, large caldera forming, uh, eruptions, um, and these are not, you know, a caldera is, is a large circular depression, but it's not like a crater. It's much larger than a crater. It's actually where a normal caldera is where a volcano will actually collapse down into its own magma chamber. You know, it disappears. The whole thing collapses downward. You know, pretty spectacular event. Um, but the base of those calderas is about the diameter of the base of a normal volcano. 
But the Yellowstone caldera are much, much larger than that. Uh, for instance, Yellowstone caldera itself is about 85 kilometers across, you know, much, much, much larger feature. And the reason for that is because the eruption occurs in a little bit different way. And, and because it occurs in a little bit different way than, say, a Mount St. Helens-type single volcano eruption, uh, it makes it a little bit more difficult uh, to determine environmentally what it's going to be like. Because uh, we have a lot of different Mount St. Helens-type eruptions that we can see, the eruption. You know, we know what it's like. But we've never actually experienced uh, these so-called super eruptions that we have in Yellowstone. So we ha- kind of have to model it, you know, to try to get a, a, a better idea. But the main key here, uh, of course, there will be disastrous local effects. Uh, but the main key is, that are there going to be global effects? And certainly there, there, there will be global effects. But it really depends on how much um, volatiles and aerosols and particulate matter gets up into the stratosphere of the Earth. And in that case, it, it, you know, it will circumnavigate the globe, uh, and it could be highly disastrous. Uh, but even volcano eruptions, like the Mount Pinatubo eruption in the Philippines in 1991, I mean, that eruption also produced gas that circumnavigated the, the globe. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, it lowered world temperatures by about a, a degree centigrade, which is pretty significant, actually. Uh, but a super eruption like Yellowstone, of course, would be much, much, much worse than that. All right. Um, it is customary that we allow uh, our guests to have the final word on the show. So, Vic, why do you think knowing about the Yellowstone hotspot is relevant in today's world? It's. Uh, it, 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 it's not possible for you to give me enough time for to answer this completely. <laughs> yeah, you got about two minutes. Do the best you can. We'll give him. We'll give him three. <laughs> three. Yes. Yes. All right. Um, it's. Uh, I, I, I'll touch on uh, on a few things here, um, but you know, humans today are really concerned about uh, global change. You know, global global climate change. Um, the Earth is really a, a, a system of processes, and these processes are, are uh, interrelated between solid Earth processes, uh, uh, oceanic processes, and in uh, atmospheric processes. And volcanic eruptions are, are are part of that. And when we think about major uh, climate change, just as one example of, of this. We know that these volcanic eruptions do change world climate, but how do they do so? Uh, they can do so in different ways that could be environmentally highly destructive. Uh, so part of studying Yellowstone and these super eruptions uh, is, uh, you know, gives us, you know, any any factor that we can understand about these processes get, gives us a better idea because of the interrelationship of, of processes. Um, so that's one part of it, you know, just simply the environmental effects. But understanding how the Earth works, just from a scientific point of view, uh, this is probably less uh, pragmatic or, 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 or practical. Uh, but, uh, you know, scientifically, it's, uh, uh, there are a lot of important questions uh, to answer. Because when we have hotspots, the, the hotspots are actually a way that the Earth releases its energy, its, its heat energy. Uh, as it builds up within the Earth through the decay of radioactive particles, you have to release that energy somehow. And one way to do it is in plate tectonics, but another way to do it is in the in the mantle plumes, 
so just having an understanding of you know the relationship between energy and matter uh, within the earth is uh, is important then other things to touch on would be things like uh, economic mineral deposits uh, many of which are derived from uh, volcanic activity uh, not oil <laughs> that's, that's something entirely different but in terms of uh, metals like precious metals that we need today, uh, rarer that we need today, uh, uh, they're often concentrated by volcanic processes. So um, I guess it didn't take that long to sort of touch the highlights. No, you, you, you right, right on time. Right on time. Well, when we okay. come back, we will wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 405th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Victor Camp, retired professor of geological sciences at San Diego State University, who's been talking to us about the case for a long-lived and robust Yellowstone hotspot. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.